Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. She's just a girl and she's on fire Hotter than a fantasy Lonely like a highway She's living in a world and it's on fire Filled with catastrophe But she knows she can fly away Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 109 for November MMXB. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by Avengers Inspirations. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, uh-huh. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. So that's looking an Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? 
New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. That Girl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are February's Batgirl number 49 and Gotham Academy number 15, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Batgirl to Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TVU family. My next guest is just as important to the creative history of Barbara Gordon as, I would say, Carmine Infantino, since he and his wife took a broken Barbara and really transformed her into perhaps one of the most prolific and widely used characters throughout the DC universe, and that's Oracle. So please welcome back to the show, Mr. John Ostrander. Yay! <laughs> Everyone really is cheering. You can, you, you better believe it. As an intro, I always like to hear about how writers get into the business. So how did you, and you can also talk about Kim, how did you guys get into writing and then into the comic business specifically? Well, I had been a playwright, among other things, and I had a very good friend, he's still my good friend, Mike Gold, uh, who was starting up first comics. Now, Mike knew uh, from our history together that I was a huge uh, comic book fan and had wanted to write for comics. Mm -hmm. So uh, he calls me up and tells me, uh, I was also a big fan of the stage play Warp, which First Comics was adapting as its first comic. And I knew all the characters, backwards and forwards. So Mike uh, called me up and asked me if I would like to attempt to write an eight-page backup feature um, with one of the characters. Uh, just just on spec. So I said, oh, okay. So I started working on a plot. He gave me instructions on what I was doing wrong and what worked. And finally he gives me a call and says, well, uh, congratulations, John. You know, We're going to use the story. It's going to be in the back of our first issue. And I said, gee, that's great. Uh, do I get paid for this? And he said, yes, you sap. <laughs> so, uh, and so that was my start in comics. Okay. Um, and I brought Kim in because, well, A, I knew that she liked to write. She wanted to write. She was also a big fan of comics. Uh, and I felt that uh, she would be able to add something to, uh, particularly to the Suicide Squad and some of the other works that I was doing. So, um, so I sort of pulled her in and she was all too willing to go. And and the rest, as I say, is hysteria. Yeah, there you go. Well, how did your version of the Suicide Squad come about then? Well, that um, I had original. Uh, I was just starting to 
to write for DC Comics, and I've been talking with Robert Greenberger, editor over there. Uh, he and I became very chummy, and uh, I told him that, and I was angling for a title called Challengers of the Unknown, which is one of the great titles in comics, I think. I mean, it just is evocative. But unfortunately, he told me that that book was already being in development. And he said, well, look, we have this other uh, very little-used title that has been around forever. Nobody's doing anything with it. It's called Suicide Squad. And my response was, what a stupid title. <laughs> Who in their right minds would belong to something that called itself Suicide Squad? I was about to walk away when all of a sudden the answer hit me. Those who have no other choice. Mm. Who has no other choice? Mm, prisoners um, who are who would be in prison in the DC universe. The villains. Hmm. Okay, so th from there I added one part, Mission Impossible, one part, uh, Dirty Dozen, and uh, there's an old title called Secret so Society of Supervillains. I blended it all together in my uh, mental blender, and uh, and that's how Suicide Squad started up. Now, of course, I'm sure you know that there's a movie coming out with the Suicide Squad. I had heard, yes. Okay. Have you seen anything about it? Do you have any thoughts? Like, you feel like, yeah, that's, you know, something that I, I had a, a hand in. Oh, I'm very, I'm very enthused about it. I mean, I've seen the trailer, same as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, one of the things that thrilled me about it was Amanda Waller. Oh, uh, yeah. When she's there at the start and what she's talking about, um, first of all, Viola Davis looks like uh, Amanda Waller. She sounds like Amanda Waller. Mm -hmm. She's got Waller's attitude. And what she was saying there in the trailer could have been taken directly from the comic. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very enthused with that. Also, I'm very enthused with uh, particularly some of the big name stars who are, who are in it. I mean, when you got Will Smith in a film, that right. means that they are putting real money into this mm -hmm. and that and they think it's going to be something Absolutely. so that and and jared leto i think it was brilliant mm -hmm. um yeah how do you how do you replace someone like heath ledger mm -hmm. um and the answer is you don't what you do is first of all you get yourself an actor who's every bit as good yeah, and that's what jared leto is and then secondly you make sure that your interpretation looks nothing like his it's a whole. It's a whole different interpretation. This is actually a much more punk Joker, if you think about it. Right. And um, that's what they're doing. And I thought, well, hey, that's brilliant. That's also brilliant. You know, I mean, I know some people are complaining because they don't think he looks like the Joker, but for this movie, he sure does. Mm -hmm. He fits right into it. Um, there were reasons why I never put the Joker into the squad. I didn't feel that he would be a good fit, but he looks terrific for this one. So, so that sort of leads into my next question. When you said you didn't choose to put Joker in there, you didn't want to. So were you given complete freedom in the members that you chose? And then how did you come to pick the various members that you ended up putting on the team? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that I picked some of the characters is that I, one of the reasons I didn't want Joker was that I wouldn't be able to get free reign with him. I mean, I mean, this is a major villain for the Batman line. And any time that he was going to appear in DCU was going to be under the auspices of the uh, Batman office, and which is fine as it should be. But I like to be un, you know, like unconstricted, unrestricted with my use of the characters. 
particularly since you know like you want characters who you might possibly be able to kill off. Not that you intend to always, but um, you want the reader to believe that you might do it. And uh, certainly they weren't going to let me kill kill the Joker off. So uh, uh, instead, instead of uh, the Joker and Harley Quinn, we had uh, Punch and Julie, who were wacky. Mm-hmm, that they were. And, uh, uh, and they were sort of our form of those two characters. So, uh, and I, I mean, Bob Greenberger... Um, had some suggestions when we were starting as to who should be in it. Bob was one of the ones uh, was the one who suggested that we have some of the minor heroes as well as somebody to write herd on the villains. And at first, I wasn't keen on it, but then I became keen because I saw the logic of it. And so we added people like uh, Bronze Tiger, like uh, um, uh, like Nightshade, like like Nemesis, you know, like. Um, and again, these are all characters who were more like B or even C list characters, mm-hmm. because I could get my, you know, I got freedom to do what I wanted to with them. Yeah, no one else was using them at the time, so um, uh, we did, and we were able to, for instance, even with um, uh, Captain Boomerang. Well, they were going in a different direction with the Flash at that point, and, uh, and although he was a major Flash villain. Mm-hmm. I was I was able really to um, do what I wanted to with him because no one was doing anything with him. Um, Deadshot as well. Um, actually, I picked him because I liked his suit. There there was very little about him as a character, so we had some freedom to reinvent his character as we wanted. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, Boomerang first. Sure. Um, did you always want to make him the one person on the team that nobody liked? I always cracked up when I read Boomer Butt. That was sort of his nickname because, you know, mm-hmm. no one really enjoyed him. Was that your point right from the beginning that he's going to be the one that everyone takes pot shots at? Well, uh, at first, again, uh, Bob Greenberger suggested Boomerang. And first, uh, I mean, Boomerang was never my favorite Flash villain. So I had to think of, okay, how am I going to use him? And there was a series of historical adventure books called Flashman by George McDonald Frazier. Um, and he was using a minor character from a uh, Victorian uh, novel called Tom Brown's School Days, in which uh, Flashman is um, really this lout. He's just, an, you know, uh, uh, he's a coward, he's a bully. You know, and um, he remains that way in the Flashman novels. And, uh, as, and I found that hysterical. You know, this is a guy who, um, who yes, who is a coward bully, you know, uh, and is content to be so. That's what I liked about Boomerang, Boomerbutt, is that he knew what he was, and he was very happy with it. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, he wasn't as conflicted or, or had problems like Deadshot did, you know. No, he knew exactly what he was, and... Uh, and my, one of my other gags was that every time I thought I found he had sunk to his lowest, lowest level, Boomer Butt found another level to sink to. Yeah, like the um, the pie throwing escapades, which was yeah. a mystery for several issues. Oh, you didn't think time. it was him. Yeah, so talk about that. How you came up with that fun little well, side uh, story? Yeah, um, actually, Kim and I came up with it, and uh, I don't believe how long we got away with it. You know, it was just. I mean, a pie in the face, you know, uh, uh, that's slapstick. That's pure slapstick. So what's it doing in Suicide Squad? Well, every now and then you need something that's slapstick in something that could be pretty dark, like the like the squad. So 
And the first one, of course, to get it was Waller. That had to be. But Boomerang would be the instant uh, uh, suspect. Right. So, uh, so we arranged so that Boomerang got the second pie in the face. Although we found out eventually it was a Boomerang uh, uh, pie that, w- right. that he hit himself with. So, and he did it deliberately to pull suspicion off himself. Mm-hmm. And then we just wanted to see how long we could string it along. Not doing it in every issue, but doing it pretty often. And I think we went a year or two before we finally revealed it. Yeah, I I, I think the first time I encountered it was uh, Vixen, Vixen and, and Bronze Tiger getting on a plane. And so I thought, what is going on? So I had to read up into that and, and get reacquainted with the pie throwing escapades. But I thought, this is crazy. And then it just it's a deeper mystery. Uh, so mm-hmm. so well done, sir, with that. It was it was really fun, and you're absolutely right that you needed, I think, a, a lighter moment uh, in all of this stuff that's going on throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's part of you know our way of also keeping the reader off balance. I mean, they're just looking, you know, that's going to be a very serious, very you know deadly series, and then every once in a while, you know, we would have some fun. Absolutely. Now another character, Deadshot. You see his journey really develop throughout your run. And at one point, he lets go of the Deadshot identity and just is Lawton for the time being, and then he comes back. So what mm-hmm. were your decisions going into that particular character and sort of putting down the costume and then at the end taking it back up again? Well, um, some of the basis for Lawton, uh, for Deadshot, was uh, there were a couple of givens with him in terms of his background um, that, like Bruce Wayne, he also came from a very rich family. Um, his original costume was so ludicrous. Uh, he appeared in top hat and tails and a domino mask and uh, twin um, six shooters strapped to his waist. It was it was an absurd look. Um, and I had seen a a document uh, yeah a documentary, and they were talking to a hired killer uh, for the mafia for the mob and he was boy he scared the life out of me you know i mean you know so cold you know now whether or not he's telling the truth or not beats me but one of the things one of the points that he made was that his life didn't mean anything to him so why should yours and that became one of the cornerstones for me for for dead shot it's not that he really has a death wish he just doesn't care you know, so if his life doesn't matter to you, then why should anybody else's? You know, um, for a while when he went back to Lawton, um, he sort of grew out of the Deadshot persona for a while. But uh, but it, but it, that's not something that you can leave forever. You you have to bring him back. So again, it's just a way of shaking things up yeah, for a while. Now earlier you were talking about uh, deaths, deaths of the team members, and that you had to use lesser used characters in order to be allowed potentially to kill them off so what Mm -hmm. thought did you give to the various deaths that occurred throughout your run and then how did you decide which members specifically you were going to kill off and when uh it usually came out of the story you know like which one uh uh, have we used up in terms of i felt for story potential although we did a um a crossover with the doom patrol at the time there was a special and we had, and we created a special team. Rick Flagg was the only regular member on that team, but they all died. 
they all died. And in retrospect, I look, you know, I we picked characters that I was that I thought I wouldn't mind killing off, you know, and that no one would miss. But as I worked on them, I decided, oh, I kind of like them. Oh, I kind of like that one too. Oh, and I'm killing them all off. Oh well, you know, if it, it would be too easy to kill off someone who who no one cared about. First, we had to make you care about them, and then then it means something when they die. Yeah, and, and I think uh, there were a couple, there are two people in particular that I thought really had big ramifications and hit me emotionally was Flo. Um, mm-hmm. And that, of course, you know, you also saw her connection both with Waller and with Oracle. So I think that was really big. And then Adam Cray, who was the yeah. Atom. And, yeah. and how did he come about? And, you know, was his death planned from the very beginning? Pretty much. Uh, with Adam Cray, um, uh, I wanted to use the Atom. Because I thought the Atom actually would be a terrific addition to an espionage group. You know, I mean, somebody who can shrink down and then come back up and stuff. And uh, uh, we even created it so that he had actually been there for a long time. The reader just never saw saw him any more than the squad did. Um, And I thought that also, you know, if we would have people going, well, yeah, but that's really Ray Palmer. You know, he's just going by a different name. And so when we actually killed him off, then that was a, uh, again, that was a nasty shock for people because a lot of people were assuming that that really was Ray Palmer. And uh, it was something that wasn't looked for. Uh, I think one of the biggest uh, shocks to everyone is when we killed Rick Flagg. Yeah. Because that served notice. If we were willing to kill off Rick Flagg, who was the leader of the team, everyone was subject to being yeah, killed. No yeah, no Absolutely. one's safe. Yeah, no one's safe. And so long as that was true, you know, then that would always create more suspense mm-hmm. within the uh, within the series. I mean, you know, so that when eventually we even shot Waller, yeah, uh, yep. that made people go, maybe they are really killing her. They, they did it with mm-hmm. Flag. Always, you know, you don't want the reader to to take it for granted. You don't want to kill someone every issue either for the same reason. It becomes... Too, too predictable, but um, keep keep them guessing. Make them wonder. You know, you know who's going who's going to live, who's going right. to die. Well, throughout your run, you had several storylines which had interactions either with similar special ops teams in the U.S. or from other parts of the world. What made mm-hmm. you want to do these sorts of stories and crossovers rather than just focusing on the Suicide Squad itself? Well, it seemed to me that um, all the superheroes were being were being focused. In the United States, you know, and if there were metahumans and stuff like that, why wouldn't they also be around the world? You know, um, different ones would be recruited for, by by different groups, uh, and just seemed to me to make some sense that there would be supervillains, superheroes, uh, teams uh, elsewhere. Now, in one of these uh, crossovers, the Ledger Domain storyline, you, you include mm-hmm. the writer, which at that time I wasn't sure who this was, and I had to look him up. So, were you poking a little bit of fun at uh, Grant Morrison there when you had included them in this uh, particular yeah. story? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because we, uh, I read the ending uh, to Animal Man, where where Grant put himself into the book, and I said, "Oh, well, he's a DC character mm-hmm. now." So and um, and I could pick them up and use them and kill them <laughs> off. Yes, Man, no off. one is safe. Uh, uh, and uh, my and my editor, I think, it was still Bob Greenberger at that point. Said, "No, no, you can't call him Grant Morrison." I said, "Well, okay, we'll just call him the writer." 
And, you know, and uh, again, there's another gag because, you know, what he what he writes on his uh, uh, magic typewriter as he runs around uh, becomes true. But then he dies because he hits writer's block, which I thought was very creative. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty funny. Absolutely. I'm not sure whether or not Grant Morrison himself appreciated (laughs) it. But I hope he did, and hoped he hoped he understands uh, the spirit in which it was done. It's all fun, yeah. Well, final question before we get into the main event of Barbara. Uh, your book ended mm-hmm. issue sixty six. So, what went into mm-hmm. writing that ending? And did you have any further plans for the book that you were unable to accomplish? Well, I, you know, with the squad, I could have continued writing it, you know, just about mm-hmm. forever. Uh, we did do an issue sixty seven years later. Uh, as part of a, um, a stunt that they were doing where they were doing additional last issues of, of, of books that had been canceled. And then, of course, I also did a, um, a crossover with, um, with The Secret Six. And, and we, of course, you also got a chance to do a, uh, a miniseries as well with the squad. So I just wanted it to be a place where it would seem to be okay if there wasn't a next issue, but also didn't end things in such a way that we couldn't do another issue. Gotcha. Okay. Well, now the main event, of course, is talking about Barbara Gordon and her role on the team. So I know Mm -hmm. when you came on before, when we talked about uh, the killing joke, I asked you this, but I was wondering if you could also uh, talk again about how you and why you and Kim decided to use Barbara. Well, we were not overly crazy about uh, about the killing joke, and especially how Robert was used in that. Uh, and I think even now, if you ask Alan Moore, he would tell you it's not one of his best works. I just felt that um, in in the killing joke, there's a ring at the Gordon apartment. There's a uh, there's a doorbell, right. and Barbara runs to it, looking like she's going teehee, you know, <laughs> giggling or whatever, yeah. and um, and. There's no, there's no peephole in the door. There's no chain on the door. She just opens it wide open. Yeah, this is Gotham City for crying out loud. Absolutely. And and there's the Joker standing right there. There's of course no guards because, you know, this is Gotham City, and what's the worst that could happen? So um, and and he shoots her. He shoots her, and and then when we see her later on, she's been beaten up. As well, and it looks at at one point as we leave that scene that Joker is tearing off her clothes, you know, and um, and seemed to me, and he was taking pictures of her, and uh, um, Kim and I interpreted that as she was going to be raped, which we thought was pretty horrendous. Um, And then at the end of the story, Batman and the Joker share this laugh together. (laughs) You know, it's just. It did not sit well with us. And we felt that there should be consequences, repercussions to it. I mean, technically, Barbara should have been dead. Just from the angle, uh, from the caliber of the gun and and the angle, you know, like, um, it, it probably would have taken out, you know, like, uh, part of her intestine, uh, perhaps her uh, bladder. You know, she would have had uh, sepsis. You know, she probably would have died from it um, if she wasn't dead by the time she hit the floor. Um, but again, from the angle, it looked like uh, we decided, you know, like that part of her spine had been shot away, 
you know, like, so that she would be crippled, you know, and we felt it was important to address that and to let it remain that way. You know, we didn't want her getting out of the wheelchair. We wanted her to be who she was and still be a hero and still be in the wheelchair. Uh, we checked with the Batman office. Uh, they said they had no plans, whatever, to do anything else with Batgirl or Barbara Gordon. And so we were free to do what we wanted. And so we decided we would introduce her as Oracle through the uh, squad. But there, too, it was a case of uh, Oracle as Oracle would appear on a screen uh, as a symbol. But you didn't know for several issues who Oracle really was. And again, it made sense to us because Barbara had spent a lot of time with computers before this. So the fact that uh, she would be this information maven, that she would um, that she would be able to look things up. And Kim and I both went, if we, if we do this right, she'll be very popular in the DC universe with the writers because she would solve a lot of plot problems. Do you want to uh, show how so-and-so learns about something? Uh, well, okay, bring Oracle in. Somebody, you know, uh, the hero calls, even Batman calls Oracle and gets the info. And they uh, and they're off and running. How did you come up with the name Oracle? Well, uh, again, it was um, it's mythical. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the Oracle was someone who knew a great deal, you know, like, who could predict this and that. Right. So it just seemed appropriate for a character who would who would have that kind of access to information in the DCU, and having a, a sort a slightly classical. Uh, background. Well, Barbara was was and is a very um, intelligent woman and a very um, schooled person, you know. Like, and so this would just touch on her sense of um, uh, of what would work, of what would be right. Is there a story behind her mask symbol and who designed it? God, I'm trying to remember who designed it. It might have been Brian Stelfreeze. Okay. But it might have been uh, whoever was drawing the book at that point. And I God, I can't quite remember whether it was uh, uh, John K. Snyder III or uh, uh, – it might have been Doc 3. But um, I think we suggested that it would be uh, like, a, like a Greek mask in some ways, like the actors would use in the uh, old Greek theater. So, but I'm not, but I could be wrong on all of that. Okay. You know, I mean, that was a while back and my memory ain't what it used to be. Okay. Uh, so you talk about how her appearances in the very beginning were brief and they were shrouded in mystery. Sometimes you just mm-hmm. saw a shot of a computer or a silhouette or, you know, even a mm-hmm. Batgirl doll. So what made you want to sort of start off this way and then increase in, in small increments until it's actually realized that it's Barbara Gordon? Well, uh, doing that creates a mystery, and people want to know what the answer to that mystery is. And if you withhold it for a while, not too long, because too long would get a little, a really a kind of obnoxious. Okay. So, um, but you want to leave little clues along the way, because that's part of the fun of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To, to be able to um, uh, fill it in. And the very fact that we had the Batgirl doll by by her keyboard... Mm-hmm. That was a major tip-off to anyone who was really thinking and putting it all together. So, uh, so that all made uh, made it fun, I think, and made the Oracle character someone 
that the reader really wanted to see more of. Yep. And it's fun to look back now. So when I was covering it on my show, I pretended that I didn't know who it was. But mm-hmm. it's fun to do that because then you can really sort of pull out details of what she's saying, how, you know, with whom she's interacting, things like that, and, and get mm-hmm. to know her a little bit more. So that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even Waller couldn't find out who she right, was. Right, right. You know, I mean, I mean that also creates a uh, a real powerful uh, a character right there because you know like, Waller can't find out who she is. Oh, and she's and she's basically almost tweaking Waller about it. You know, um, uh, that's fun. Yeah, absolutely. The death of Flo was actually the first time that we saw Barbara Gordon was in fact Oracle. So why did you pick this moment to show her face? It was a big emotional moment in the in the series, you know. So um, it's basically how do you make that moment even bigger? Well, that's when you tip your hand on something else. Okay. You know, uh, at least that's my thinking of it now. You know, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what my thinking was at the time. Okay. But uh, but to me, that's what would make sense. Okay. Now, around the same time, Oracle is also popping up. You know, in other books like Manhunter, which was written by you and your wife, Firestorm, which is also written by you, Starman, which had Roger Stern penning it, and then Hawk and Dove written by the Kiesels. So uh-huh. what was the plan for including her in these different books that are scattered throughout the DC universe? And did you see it pay off at the time? Well, uh, again, part of our part of our intention was would be, was that she would show up uh, throughout the DCU, you know, uh, and in many ways, I feel that by her doing that, she became an even more important character in the DCU than she ever was as Batgirl. Mm-hmm. Um, she was more useful. She um, and, and and she covered things that way. So uh, yes, her her spreading out and being used like that, and then in the Bat books, even right, you know, and that's kind of that's kind of an interesting turnaround, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that they uh, almost kill Batgirl, but or but then she comes back as Oracle and is useful to uh, to Batman. Right, absolutely. That's a nice little twist. Yeah, yep. Uh, so I want to talk about two, I think, very important issues, and that's 48 and 49 with the mind boggler. How did you decide when to make Oracle a focus and really bring her fully into the Suicide Squad fold? Well, we decided that <coughs> excuse me, uh, that it's just a natural progression at some point. First, she's there. You don't know who she is. Then, then we reveal who she is, and then she becomes tied more to the squad so that you can play with her more as a character and why mind boggler oh god i honestly honestly i can't remember why we did it that way okay you know i wish i could tell you i did but i don't okay it's interesting because you sort of use him as almost like a mirror of joker because you're not using joker but mind boggler almost represents him to barbara gordon Mm -hmm. um so you didn't really enjoy, which I don't either, you know, the killing joke in that journey. But why did you want to focus on her, her dark journey with the Joker in these two issues? I think because that's a seminal moment mm-hmm. for both who she was and who she has now become. And anything that traumatic has to have psychological um, impact. 
And at some point, the character has to deal with it. You you can't just bury it and walk away from it and say, "Well, no, I'm past that now." No, you got to deal with it if you're if the character's going to seem real. You know, like, uh, that's what we um, we expect of characters. That's what we would do as people ourselves. So, um, and if you don't do it, then either you're making your character too strong, you know, too you know, almost too one dimensional that way, or you give them something like that so, for them to deal with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think she would, uh, now that I've encountered other issues where she still has this gun, do you think she would ever pull the trigger? I think, I would never say never, okay. because I, I wouldn't say that about myself. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of guns, mm-hmm. but would I never shoot someone? Well, I don't know if I could say that. I think it always comes down to what happens in that moment Who's it with, and where that person is at that point? Uh, I think to say that they would never use it is um, it, well. First of all, it's too limiting, and I just don't think it's true. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between Amanda Waller and Barbara uh, in this particular story, which it sort of comes to a head at the end of this, and then as it moves beyond? How would you describe their relationship, and how did you get there? Well, uh, Amanda is—I mean, she's a person who always wants to be in charge. You know, um, I think the word "control freak" was probably coined with Amanda Waller <laughs> in, in, in mind. Yeah. In order to win her respect, I think you have to do certain things. You have to make it hard. You know, like you can't make it. You almost have to put it so that she's not in charge, at least in terms of that relationship, because if she knows what you want, then she feels she's in charge. At a certain point, though, it makes sense for that. Again, you know, any relationship can't remain static. It has, you know, if it's growing or it's dying, you know, it, it cannot stay in just one place. And any changes, you know, it would have to reflect where both characters are at the time and what the, and what the situation is surrounding them. You know, uh, in this case, you know, what's the situation with the squad? How did you come up with the name Amy Beddows? Boy, a lot of the times when I'm working on a name, it, it comes down to um, how does it sound? What is the rhythm of it? You know, Amy Beddows, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, both names have two syllables. Um, I may have known some an Amy, and uh, I have not the foggiest notion where I came up with Beddows. Okay. Okay. It's always uh, very interesting because you just don't think Barbara Gordon at all. So maybe yeah. that's, that was the point of it, I'd say, because, you know, she mm-hmm. doesn't want anyone to know who she is deep down. Yeah. Well, another big moment is when Amanda Waller goes off on assignment and then tells Oracle that she is second in command. And at one point, Oracle actually does have to take command. So were Mm -hmm. there any plans that you may have had for Oracle to actually lead the team for a time beyond this particular story? Um, I don't think we were planning to, but again, you want to make the reader believe that that might happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, you don't want them to ever assume that they know what's going to happen next. You know, um, I think one of the strengths of the squad was its twists and turns, and and uh, you couldn't exactly see where we were going. So, um, 
could Oracle have taken over? Yeah, yeah. I think I I think that that's a path that could have happened. If it's not reasonable to assume that that would happen, then it's just a red herring. You know, but if you want the reader to believe that, oh yeah, that that could happen. In which case, you know, like under what circumstances would that happen? Would it happen ever while Waller was alive? Well, yeah, you know, if, and the reader wants to know, well, what are you thinking of? What are you going to do here? Is that something that you're planning to do? You know, um, and if so, should I be worried about it? Well, you know, them's all questions that I'd like to keep people asking. Okay. Another big moment for Barbara was this interaction with Batman at the actual, you know, Suicide Squad headquarters. Did mm-hmm. you always know that you wanted this sort of interaction to occur? I think there has had to be some sort of resolution between uh, between Barbara and Batman. We did it a little bit also in uh, Oracle Year One. Mm-hmm. Yep, that we did, and uh, and he comes to the hospital. And she confronts him about the fact that that they shared a laugh, and she and she asks bitterly, "Was it was it about me?" Yeah. You know, uh, um, she, there has to be. I mean, if she's heard that, if she knows that that has happened. There has to be an enormous sense of betrayal, mm-hmm. and also just the sort of way that Batman always treated her. I mean, they could know her identity; she wasn't allowed to know theirs. Well, that makes her a very second-class citizen, doesn't it? So uh, at some point, that relationship also had to change. What went into writing that scene then, since you knew all this had to happen? How did you actually sit down to pen that scene? Well, you know, it, you, you start off with what you intend to happen, what you want to have happened. But if you're writing characters correctly, they may say what you want and they may not. You know, you have to follow where the characters are going in a in, in any given scene. I mean, you have a goal, you know, like as a writer, and maybe the maybe the characters will will go in that direction. Um, if you're writing good characters, sometimes it's like herding cats. You know, you you know where you want them to go. And if they feel like it, they may go in that direction, but they may not. Did you intend Oracle to know Batman's identity? Uh if she's capable of finding out all this crap, then she's capable of finding out who who uh, who Batman is. Okay, so do you think she knew it at that time? She was just playing coy? Yeah. Okay. Well, even though your book reached a conclusion, did you have any further plans for Oracle? Um, I We could have done an Oracle miniseries, I think, as well. But at that point, they were having um, her be part of Birds of Prey. Right. Which we weren't writing, which was fine, you know. And in in some ways, that sort of furthered Barbara as a character, right? You know, um, that was her team. That's that's a very different kettle of fish than uh, than Suicide Squad is. So, if anything, I think that uh, I mean, and as I recall, it was Chuck Dixon who was writing it yep. to start, and um, and he did a good job. You know, um, I would like to think that if we had a chance to do something like that, Kim and I would have. But, you know, uh, that's where DC opted to go with her, and uh, and I think it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite moments from when you were writing Oracle or in her history? I think my 
favorite single Oracle story was the Oracle Year One. Okay. Yep. Series where we where we covered really what is the transition from Batgirl uh, to becoming Oracle, and how we showed that she could still fight as well. She she learned a uh, form of stick fighting as well. Um, it's also my favorite um, because it was the last story that uh, Kim and I ever worked on together. Um, we actually worked on it when she was in the hospital. And um, and, uh, and at certain beats, certain moments, for instance, Kim was very insistent that when Barbara left the hospital, we show a page in which we show how difficult it is just to get from the wheelchair into the car. That, yeah, I mean, something that we all take for granted, right? you know, Absolutely. we can just and walk in, but it's not that simple when you're in a wheelchair. And to her, that was, you know, like a very important moment. So um, we worked out the story. I, I worked up the plot. And then when the time came, you know, we did the uh, scripting together. And that was our uh, last work together. And I know people really appreciate scenes like that that it shows that realism there. And I think often we we don't think about it. And so it's great to see what does Barbara go through day to day. Yeah. And the fact that also when she's, um, when she encounters her villain, her villain almost tosses her into uh, the traffic onto ongoing. Right. Yep. um, Almost literally uh, throws her into the wheel of a bus. Uh, And that also would be terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, that you don't have any control on that. You know, that's, you know, it's, and for Barbara to become a victim again, that would be very, very hard for her. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, before we move on to uh, the final one, which is talking about Amanda Waller, I did have someone write in, and uh, she, she has written in a couple of times, she calls herself Wheelchair Ninja. Her real name is Angela, but she describes herself as a real-life glasses-wearing wheelchair-using computer geek girl. And she just wants to thank you for writing such an awesome creator that people with disabilities can identify with. And choosing to rebuild her life without erasing her impairment is one of the most realistic, positive portrayals of disability in any medium. So she really wanted to thank you for that. Well, I I really appreciate it because, uh, uh, I won't lie, that was part of our thinking Mm -hmm. behind it, you know, uh, uh, that you can be a hero. Uh, Barbara still was as great a hero as she ever was as Batgirl when she was in the wheelchair and uh, an oracle. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts on the killing joke being made into an animated feature? No, not really. Okay. I, 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 they're going to do it. Right. I, it's right. not what I would have chosen to do, yeah. but you know, I'm, I don't run the place. So. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll do something with Oracle then to kind of – put a band-aid on the boo-boo but who knows yeah yeah uh and maybe in the story they can make it um a little less you know that uh that she just opens the door and gets shot yeah you know that's just kind of it's not respectful of the character i think well another one of my favorites which i didn't even know she was my favorite i think until i started reading your work is amanda waller Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's perhaps the star of the book and perhaps the most intriguing. So what went into creating her? Well, I knew that I wanted to have a, basically a top kick, you know, like I was someone who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And I wanted someone who was not like anyone we'd ever seen before. Um, and I think that's safe to say about Waller is that there wasn't, that when she showed up, there had never been anyone like her in comics before. And I don't think 
Uh, there's been really anyone like her since. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted female. Uh, I wanted uh, a person of color. Mm-hmm. I want someone who was not uh, young, basically more middle-aged. Uh, and I wanted her to be of a certain heft. Uh, there are reasons behind that. Um, just as in comics, you know, uh, there's always this visual shorthand, you know, uh, that there's this idolized body. Right. For both, um, because we're talking about basically gods and goddesses, demigods. Mm-hmm. By her size and heft, the nickname of the wall would definitely come up. Uh, she, uh, she looked formidable. Just by her, just by her size. Even if she was smaller than some of them, her uh, her overall, shall we say, profile mm-hmm. would um, would definitely make her look formidable. And um, I, well, I have been asked, you know, how how is it that I can write a person of color, female, you know, of that age? Um, there was someone who once opined that somewhere inside of me, I had. A middle-aged black, heavy-set woman, <laughs> and, um, which may be possible because Amanda is one of two characters that I've ever written whose voice is always there. I mean, I can be away from her for years, as happened just before I came back to the uh, uh, miniseries. Mm-hmm. And you're always you wonder, you know, like, am I going to be able to? Is it going to sound like her? You know, like, am I going to be able to pick up that character? And um, the moment I started writing her dialogue, she was right there. It's like, yeah, I've been here. Where you been? So uh, her somebody also asked me recently, where did she come from? And um, I realized that um, my paternal grandmother, while not a woman of color, was formidable. You know, and a glare from her when I was a kid. <laughs> um, as I said to somebody recently, uh, I I knew she loved me. I'm not sure she always liked me. Yeah, you didn't want to cross her, you know, or at least I didn't. So I took that memory, and I think used that as the kernel from which I grew Amanda Waller. So do you? So I guess you prefer the fat Amanda Waller, or you know, the heavy set one, because we've had some portrayals where she is thinner. Yeah, and uh, again, there's. Um, when you're dealing with comics, you have an iconography, as I call it. You know, uh, uh, there's, and to me, the iconography for for Amanda is the heavy set one. Um, I I can see them doing it. I guess I know why, but to me, uh, to really have that force of her, you know, to experience that, there has to be the visual component, and I think the heavy set Amanda does that better. But she's not my character uh, to own right. and control, so it's DCs and whatever they want to do. Do you have a favorite portrayal thus far, other in uh, the cartoon or in any of the TV shows or movies? Well, C.H. Pounder, uh, I think, uh, was all has always yes. had the right voice yeah, and, and the right attitude, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly would have been one of my choices okay. to portray her in almost any medium. But that said. Viola Davis was one of three that I said, you know, you get any one of these three and, uh, and you've got a lock. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with her, it's like, again, just a little bit I've seen made me go, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Do you have any or did you have any favorite team members that you liked Waller interacting with? If you ask me who were who I would feel would be essential for, for a squad story, 
I would want Waller. I would want uh, Boomer Butt, and I'd want Deadshot. Okay. Uh, but but <laughs> some of my favorite has got to be between her and Boomerang. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his sass and um, her knowing just how to squelch him. You know, I mean, I think she took a real special pleasure in squelching him. You know, um, uh, and so that always crackled. I felt. Yeah. There's an odd relationship between her and Deadshot. Mm-hmm. There's an antagonistic one, I think, between her and Flag. Uh, my feeling always was that she, her intention was to have Bronze Tiger be the head of the squad, but she got saddled with Rick Flag instead. Yeah, I've I've always thought in my reading that her interactions with Bronze Tiger were pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Almost, uh, you can disagree with this, of course, because you're you're the writer, but almost like a mother son relationship, at least on her side, like her almost looking to him, mother son. Would you agree with that? Was that any okay. any intention there? Yeah, I think there's truth in that. Okay. Well, when uh, the wall was imprisoned and she came out, there was a distinct change in her character. So did, yeah. did you want there to be this uh, drastic change from, you know, before she was in prison to after? I think that um, we have to look at also how did she go to be in prison? Right. And um, she chose to let herself go to prison. And uh, I, I have a feeling it's because she felt she felt she'd gone too far. She felt she had to do it, but she also felt that she had to be reined in. You know, uh, she used to tell some people like uh, Simon Legreve or Father Kramer that they were there sort of as Jiminy Cricket as, as her conscience. I think she told them once or one of them once that she says, I hear you just because I don't do what you say doesn't mean I'm not listening. You know, and uh, so, yeah, I think, again, you're looking – yeah, when you're doing an ongoing comic, you have to give people enough so they they feel they're getting they want the same but only different, and so there has to be a progression. It has to make sense within the context of what's happened and within the context of what the book is. And I think we did that again with Amanda. You know, you you don't want to change Amanda too far because then she's not Amanda. But uh, there has to be growth, right? That's to be changed, at least. I, whether it's growth or not is is debatable sometimes, but there has to be some kind of change. One of my favorite moments for, you know, the change, Amanda, was when she was talking with Sarge Steele outside the White House, and she admitted that all of the deaths of all of the people that, you know, she's worked with have really gotten to her. And mm-hmm. normally, you know, this was a shocking conversation for me because she's not accustomed to showing her feelings so freely. Mm-hmm. So what made it uh, or what was it that made you want to write her with more of a vulnerable side in this particular scene? And then, you know, post prison, because if you don't show something like that somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, then she just becomes, you know, a, 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 a cliche, a stereotype of herself. You know, like, uh, you have to show, you know, like, that human aspect. You know, I mean, it, she says, and she also often pretends that she just doesn't care whether or not the villains die or not. But that makes her less than human. Um, one thing I've always felt about Amanda is that um, there are people who have described her as a villain herself, you know, or, or evil. I've never felt that about her. An antihero, maybe, or, almost certainly. But I never felt that she was villain. I never felt that she was evil. And I didn't try to write her that way. And I think if somebody does, I think that's an essential misunderstanding 
of who she is. Did you have any other plans for uh, Amanda before or after the end of the book? I would have gone on exploring her. You know, I mean, she, uh, there was so much that we could do with her, I think, you know, um, because she wasn't stuck in just one rut. So, yeah, I was, I'd just be interesting to see what she would get into next and where she would go. Um, the events of the world really influenced the squad of, of our of our actual world. Right. I would get the plot idea sometimes just from reading uh, the newspaper and then sort of projecting uh, what what could happen. And in fact, I had a friend of mine who at one point gave me a call, and she wanted to know where I was sending the squad the following summer because she was getting ready to um, to plan her vacation. Oh, no. And. Um, where and wherever I was saying the story is where she did not want to go. Oh my! <laughs> uh, because it had an odd effect of um, we would do uh, we would start to do something, and then something like that would would come up either around that time or shortly after, or, or even shortly before. And that actually goes back to when we started the squad. I mean, the original idea was that um, the government would use. Um, bad guys to do covert missions supposedly in the uh, uh, interest uh, United States interest well at the time that we started that that was a pretty far out idea you know you know like uh, that was kind of on the edge but between the time that the squad was approved and say like the secret origins issue came out we had um, Iran gate we had um, uh, this whole swapping prisoners for for arms deal that uh, uh, in the Reagan administration, so it actually made us look like a piker, or that we were imitating them. And actually, we weren't. We were trying to uh, um, trying to be risky, trying to be a little bit outrageous. And reality caught up with us. Do you have any favorite moments from when you were writing Waller? God. Uh, it's so hard just to pick one because because uh, there's so many different places where she could go and did go. Um, I do remember that in one story, we did a small backup feature, I think, in one of the annuals. And we saw Amanda going home and dealing with her daughter and her son-in-law. And her son-in-law was this big kind of football brute, you know, not very bright. And, and we got to see her with them and uh, see how she was as a mother, get the idea of she didn't take much there either. So um, I was like that little story. Well, is there anything that you are working on now, anything that we can help support you with? Well, certainly. Uh, Tom Mandrake and I, who and Tom did uh, The Spectre with me and Martian Manhunter, were working on a... Um, a creation of our own called Cross, and the first story is called Hallowed Ground. And it's one part uh, the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War and one part vampire. Okay. So you you have the battle during the day and you have fighting the vampires at night. Uh, and we're working on that. And we did a Kickstarter with it, and we got fully funded. And now it's a matter of finishing that up, bringing it out, and maybe even making it more available to the general audience. Okay. And uh, and then beyond that, it's you know I got a bunch of projects. You know we'll see whether I can get any of them off the ground. But I hope so. Okay, we hope so too. 
Um, as, as someone who really enjoyed your work on Suicide Squad, I look forward to reading more from you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I love doing it. And I have to say, you know, I, was, um, I had this, um, a chance to meet some more fans again this last weekend. And at cons and stuff like that, I love meeting the fans. They're so generous and um, uh, enthusiastic. So um, it is all very much appreciated. You know, and I never take that for granted. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine met you at the Baltimore Comic Con. Um, mm-hmm. we, we covered uh, the Ledger Domain story together, and he got you to sign one of those issues. So you, you met him. You may not remember him, but his name was uh, Tom Panarese. So. Oh. Well, yeah, I, I'm sure I was glad to meet him. <laughs> yeah, so I he got he was in my town, so he got me uh, a copy of it. So I'm excited to have something with your signature on it, since I, ah. I may not meet you. But it it was a pleasure and an honor to talk with you, and and just like Angela said, it's just you made such an impact on Barbara's history, and I cannot thank you enough as a as a fan of hers for just doing what you did and, and taking the Killing Joke and what happened there, and just giving her a purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, she was an important character to me and to Kim as well. Uh, and I loved working with her. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to John Ostrander for coming on and talking about his work on Suicide Squad and specifically Oracle and Amanda Waller. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl the Oracle and like the Batman universe on Facebook as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, where you may in fact see some irredeemable shady person hanging around, fly on, Bats lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?